morning, church. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the privilege of knowing you. We thank you that you've revealed yourself to us through the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for giving us your word. And we thank you that now we have the opportunity to open that word and to to see more of you, more of him. And we pray that as we do so, that your Holy Spirit would, would grant us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts that are eager to understand and apply what we find. We confess to you that we have hearts prone to stray, hearts that are quick to negotiate with the truth, and we pray, Father, that you would break us of that, that we would be very quick to to worship and obey as, as a result of the things that we see here. There may be things that are hard to understand and So we pray that you would minister to us by helping us and that as we leave this place, we would be be filled with a a, a great desire to honor you with our lives. We ask all of these things in Jesus' name, amen. Please open your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 24. Leviticus 24, last week we looked at verses 1 through 9, this morning we'll be looking at the rest of the chapter, and so as you find your place there, if you would stand with me, we'll, we'll begin by reading verses 10 through 23, Leviticus 24, beginning in verse 10. Now an Israelite woman's son, whose father was an Egyptian, went out among the people of Israel. And the Israelite woman's son and a man of Israel fought in the camp. And the Israelite woman's son blasphemed the name and cursed. Then they brought him to Moses. His mother's name was Shelomith, the daughter of Dibri of the tribe of Dan. And they put him in custody till the will of the Lord should be made clear to them. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Bring out of the camp the one who cursed and let all who heard him Lay their hands on his head, and let all the congregation stone him, and speak to the people of Israel, saying, Whoever curses his God shall bear his sin. Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him. The sojourner, as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name, shall be put to death. Whoever takes a human life shall surely be put to death. Whoever takes an animal's life shall make it good, life for life. If anyone injures his neighbor as he has done, it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Whatever injury he has given a person shall be given to him. Whoever kills an animal shall make it good, and whoever kills a person shall be put to death. You shall have the same rule for the sojourner and for the native, for I am the Lord your God. So Moses spoke to the people of Israel, and they brought out of the camp the one who had cursed and stoned him with stones. 
Thus the people of Israel did as the Lord commanded Moses. You may be seated. There's a modern marketing strategy to offer a free gift as an incentive to to buy or to try a product. You see this a lot with infomercials, of course. Sometimes you'll run across it in the malls. So you buy this, and if you, if you buy this, or if you try this, then you know buying this for the low price of nineteen ninety five or whatever, then we'll throw in this free gift. And if you're not completely satisfied, you could return it for. A full refund, and the free gift is yours to keep. So, you know, in the end, you can reject the giver, so to speak, but you can keep the gift. Timeshare companies, they love this, you know, come and hear this sales presentation on our timeshare, and there's no obligation to buy, but for giving us your time, then we'll give you a free week vacation on an ex- at an exotic location. So you can, with that as well, you know, you can reject the giver, you don't have to buy the timeshare, but you can keep the gift. Keep, keep the week's stay in Cancun or wherever. It should be clear as we've made our way through Leviticus, in particular these, these chapters in chapter 23, 24, should be clear that as we're talking about Sabbath rest in these recent weeks, in this case, you cannot reject the giver and keep the gift. Because the giver is the gift. Sabbath rest pictures God's desire that man would enter His presence to enjoy eternal fellowship with Him, which is what man was created for. And we've, we've said over and over that the ultimate expression of Sabbath rest is eternity in heaven. We've also seen, particularly last week, that what makes heaven heaven is the presence of God. And so to say, I don't want the giver, I don't want God, is to say, I don't want the gift. I don't want God's presence. I don't want Sabbath rest. I don't want heaven. Which means that to reject God is to choose eternal death. Now that, that is the big picture point of the passage that we have just read, which may not be obvious because the passage that we've just read is is something like a a double-decker sandwich, which which are really good if the pieces go together, you know, if the ingredients really marry well with one another. But nobody likes a double-decker sandwich. It's like pizza and then meatloaf and then pumpkin pie. And nobody's interested in that. And on a cursory reading, that seems to be what we've got in the passage that we just read. Because right in the middle, you've got teaching on an eye for an eye. And then outside of that, there's this story about a man who's blasphemed the name. And then on either side of that, in chapters 23 and 25, what we've been studying for the last couple of weeks is teaching on the Sabbath. And so it just seems like a bad sandwich that we're being fed. But, listen... All the words that are used in Scripture are chosen for a reason. And where they are used is chosen for a reason. So everything that we've just read has to go together in some way. Kind of like what we saw last week. We found that the lampstand and 
the, the table of bread in verses 1 through 9, you remember this? On first glance, it appeared to have nothing to do with the Sabbath. But we found that it had everything to do with the Sabbath. The lampstand and the bread, they pictured the people's Sabbath rest, basking in the light of God's presence, which again is the goal of God's redemptive work in Christ. We're going to find again this week that all of this makes sense. All of these layers complement one another because this section that we've just read, verses 10 through 23, provides something of a contrast to verses 1 through 9 that we looked at last week. You have this person who rather than basking in God's presence, has utterly rejected God by blaspheming the name. And we'll see that the consequences of that decision are death rather than eternal rest. Now, how do we get there? Let's work through that. First of all, the name of the Lord represents His person. The name of the Lord represents His person. We need to consider this, actually, before we get into the text itself. And and I'd actually ask you to turn to another passage of Scripture, which is Exodus 33. Exodus 33. Exodus 33 is a great place to see the connection between the name of the Lord and the person of the Lord. And most of us are likely reading from the English Standard Version, which, like most modern translations does not translate the divine name Yahweh. But rather, out of tradition, instead it replaces the divine name Yahweh with the word LORD written in all caps. And so it's important for us as we read the Old Testament to understand that when we see the word LORD in all caps, the original text did not contain just that common noun, but rather it contained a proper one, a name Yahweh, a singular name, singular in its unique capacity to capture the essence of the person whose name it is. Now, my name is Greg, and that really means nothing, okay? I mean, it, it, it comes from a Greek word that actually does mean something, but, but, but it doesn't really mean anything, except to my wife, maybe. But, but what about this name? Trump. Now that name means something to almost everybody, right? It means it means something, and and, and it depends on who you ask. Though it, it, it's we could say it's user defined, because depending on who you ask, he's either the savior of the world or he's the devil's little brother, maybe big brother. And then, and then other people you could ask is somewhere in between. But it's user-defined. Yahweh is not user-defined. But Yahweh is self-defined. And it's here in, in Exodus chapter 33 that He defines it. And He defines it by His person. Now, Exodus 33 takes place shortly after the golden calf debacle. And if you want all of that, all of that context, then I suggest you go back to Exodus 33 in your own time and read all of that. I'm going to begin reading in Exodus 33:18, and as I mentioned, the ESV uses the word Lord. I'm going to say Yahweh where we see the word Lord, okay, so that we get the weight of that name being used, okay? Exodus 33:18, Moses said, please show me your glory. Now, let's think for a second here about what he's actually asking. Moses is requesting 
for God to show His essence. Let me see you. Exodus 33.19 And He said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, Yahweh. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I'll show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, He said, you cannot see my face. For man shall not see me and live. And Yahweh said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock. And I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back. But my face shall not be seen. Now you can, you can already see in verse 19 this tight connection between the person and the name of God. And what God is doing here is He's Saying, look, you can't see my face, but I'm going to give you my name. And my name is going to represent for you who I am. You're not going to see me, but you're going to hear my name. And he actually does this in, verse, in chapter 34, verse 6. So skip down there. Yahweh passed before him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the Father on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. The name attached to the person and presence of God is Yahweh. It's it's this one word encapsulation of who He is. You, You will not see Him, but when you hear this word Yahweh, you know this is who He is. If you, if you could see Him, if you could see who He is, this one word Yahweh is, is all of this stuff. That He is merciful and gracious, He's slow to anger, He's abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And that name uniquely expresses who He is. And this is why the Bible ends up saying striking things about the name of God. Striking things like Proverbs 18.10, which reads, The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and are safe. Now, is it really a mere word that that is a safe place? No, the writer of Proverbs is, is saying that this word, this name, represents that the strong tower is the person of God. It's the person of God that's a strong tower. You run to the Lord and you're safe. But he's saying the name because the name represents the person. Similarly, Psalm 20, verse 7. Many of you may have memorized this. Some trust in chariots, some trust in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Is it a a word that we're trusting in? We trust in a word. We're trusting in the person represented by the name. We trust in Yahweh and who He is. That's, That's who we trust in. Acts 4, which was read for us this morning by by Pastor Rick, does the same thing with Jesus. In the previous pastor in Acts chapter, I'm sorry, previous chapter in Acts chapter six, the apostles had healed this man, and so in Acts chapter four, the Jewish authorities are asking the apostles regarding that man who had been healed. Hey, by what power or by what name did you do this? And so, so the point is is made again. His name represents this person. Represents Jesus. And, and so Peter then says toward the end of that passage, 
There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. He's talking about the person of Jesus. It is Jesus alone who saves. We must be saved by Him. The name of the Lord represents the person. And so, then as we begin to think about this passage in Leviticus chapter chapter 24, to blaspheme the name of the Lord is to reject Him personally. To blaspheme the name of the Lord is to reject Him personally. Personally. So we have this man in Leviticus 24, gets into a fight with another man, and in the midst of that fight, he blasphemes the divine name and curses. The word translated blaspheme means to, to deliberately use slanderous speech against. And it says that he cursed, and most scholars concur that, that the word cursing is describing the word, slan- the word blaspheme. He's he's telling us how he blasphemed. He blasphemed by cursing God. He condemned God. There's no stronger way to reject God than to wish Him accursed. That's essentially what this man has, has said. May God be accursed. Some have conjectured that he, he cursed the name because God didn't help him win the fight or curse God because the, the, other guy, the, the other guy was a full-blown Israelite. We don't know the exact circumstances or nature, but what we do know is that everyone who heard him do this knew this was a major no-no because they put him in custody until the Lord would make it clear what should be done to him. Now, how would they know that this was a big deal? Because the Ten Commandments rule out something that's an even lower bar than this. The Ten Commandments, they don't say, don't blaspheme the name or don't curse the name. They say something much, much lower. We, we might say Exodus chapter 20, verse 7, in the third commandment says, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. The, the, the Lexham English Bible reads this way, You shall not misuse the name of Yahweh your God. So the third commandment essentially forbids not not this larger thing of blaspheming God, but this lower thing of using God's name in a a trivial way, in in some way that that is flippant or careless, which would by extension treat God with irreverence or thoughtlessness. Why? Because to trivialize the name of God is to trivialize the person of God. To use His name flippantly is to take Him lightly, to disrespect Him. And and of course, our culture does this all the time, right? The word Muhammad, Buddha, Allah, you know, none of those names get used as an exclamation of surprise or frustration, do they? None none of them get mixed with with curse words. Why, Why do you think that is? I would suggest to you that that is because our fallen hearts aren't in rebellion against them. But God, Lord, Almighty, Jesus, Jesus Christ, OMG, every combination of those words get mixed with the foulest of language all the time. Why? Because... The Christian triune God is the one true God and the fallen human heart is in rebellion against Him. 
And so naturally the fallen human heart takes him lightly and demeans him by the misuse of his name. And you even hear professing Christians do this. And perhaps that's by cultural desensitization, desensitization, using God's name or, or, or forms of it as an exclamation of surprise or frustration or disgust. And even when Christians do this, they're, they're, they're not talking to him. They're not talking about him. They're using his name as an exclamation. We of all people, we should be very careful with our words in general, but certainly with the names of God. We of all people, by the way that we use His name, should only treat Him with weight and reverence. Now, how much worse then is this case in Leviticus 24, where a man has cursed the name of God? has wished that God would be condemned. Very serious. He, he has rejected God Himself. In a sense, he's, he is living within the people of God. He is enjoying the, the freedom that God has afforded him in bringing him out of Egypt. He is enjoying Sabbath rest, in a sense. What he wants is the gift, but not the giver. How is that going to work out? You know, we should note how much attention is given to this man's lineage. The text says that he's the son of an Israelite woman, and he's, an, and he's the son of an Egyptian man. So he's not an Israelite Israelite. He's, he's technically what, what the text calls a sojourner or, or a foreigner because in Israel a person's inheritance comes through the father. And so this text is, is posing a couple of questions. First of all, what's the penalty... What's the rightful penalty for somebody who blasphemes the name? Secondly, is that penalty the same thing for a sojourner as well as a native? And the answer to that is that to reject the Lord is to reject life no matter who you are. To reject the Lord is to reject life and rest. Now, let's let's continue working through the text through the, through this passage, and then we'll come back and make sense of how all this fits with the context of the, the Sabbath. Okay, so to reject the Lord is to reject life and rest. In Leviticus twenty four verses thirteen and fourteen, we read: Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, "Bring out of the camp the one who cursed." Now, this is more literally: bring the curser outside the camp. And, and when you translate it that way, bring him outside the camp. You pick up that theme from earlier in the book. Of, of being outside the camp, outside the people of God. Remember, the closer you are to the center of the camp, the closer you are to God, the further out of the camp you are, the further outside the center, the further away you are from God. Outside the camp is outside the people of God and, and, and in, the, in the realm of death, remember? So already in verse 14, things don't look good for this guy. He's being taken outside the camp, continuing, and let... All who heard him lay their hands on his head and let all the congregation stone him. Now, an interesting detail that we glean from other parts of the Pentateuch is that those who are offended by a particular crime are the ones who are called on to carry out a sentence. 
Now here all the people are told to participate in this man's stoning, indicating that this is a crime against all the people. To blaspheme the name of God is to commit a crime against all of His people. Continuing in in verse 15. And speak to the people of Israel, saying, Whoever curses his God shall bear his sin. Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him. The sojourner as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name, shall be put to death. So, so we have those two questions answered, right? What should be done for the person who blasphemes? Death penalty. Is that true in, in this case for somebody who isn't a full Israelite? Doesn't matter who it is. The same penalty applies no matter who does it. Now, that's the pronouncement of the sentence. But the sentence isn't carried out until verse 23. So you look all the way to the end of the passage. They don't, they don't actually do this until the end of the passage. But between verse 16, the pronouncement of the sentence, and the carrying out of the sentence in verse 23, you have these other laws that appear to have nothing to do with blasphemy. And what's more, appear to have nothing to do with the Sabbath. So what are we to make of verses 17 through 22, these other laws? And to be super technical, we might say that verses 17 through 22, they just represent a single principle that's applied to different cases. By the way, for for all the nerds, verses 17 through 22 is a chiasm. Remember what a chiasm is? On the, the, the first concept... That, that is given to us is mirrored by the last concept. The second concept is mirrored by the second to last concept and, and, and so forth until you get to the middle and there's something that's crucial in the middle. What do you think is in the middle of this chiasm? Eye for eye is in the middle, which tends to be the theme of the chiasm. Eye for eye. That's the principle. Whatever you do to someone else, that's the penalty that will be levied against you. Take a human life, lose your life. Take an animal's life, you're going to pay with your animal. And eye for eye, you know, in in our culture and and in cultures for actually for for a really long time, eye for an eye has been regarded as a really harsh form of justice. But, But actually, that's the opposite of how we should think of it. By the way, many of us right now, we're thinking of Jesus' words about this passage about what Jesus said about an eye for an eye. Lord willing, I'll address that on the blog this week. But, but this principle, an eye for an eye, has sometimes been called lex talionis, which, which means the law of retaliation. And even though we may think of it as harsh, harsh, it's actually a very gracious development in justice because it prevented over-retaliation. It, it ensured that the punishment would fit the crime. And, and many, many scholars believe that, that fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, that this, this is actually was not taken literally. That if you broke somebody's hand, well, we're, we're going we're to break your hand. You knock out somebody's tooth, we're going to knock your tooth out. That that actually wasn't taken literally, but rather they, they, they understood this figuratively to, to just mean that the punishment was going to be commensurate with the crime. And so the, there's not going to be a punishment that's too lenient given the nature of a crime, nor is there going to be a punishment that's too harsh, given the nature of the crime. And listen, that happened rampantly in the ancient Near East. You, you would have punishments that were very lenient for a given crime if you were a particular person in society, and you would have a punishment that was really, really harsh. 
given the nature of a crime, if you are a particular person in society. Now, this, this is God's way of saying, no matter who you are, sojourner or native, the punishment is going to fit the crime. There, there's going to be actual justice. And so the, this, this, this section here brings what may have been in, 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 in the broad ancient Near East, a kind of Wild West personal vengeance type street justice into check. You, you, you can't do whatever you want to somebody who hurts you. And actually, strictly speaking, you can't do it, period. There's, there's a legal process. If a person is found guilty, then you may be involved in, in bringing the punishment, but there's going to be due process and the punish, punishment will be commensurate with the crime. Now, listen, we could take verses 17 through 22 and we could preach a sermon just on this. And that would be fine. It would be absolutely fine. And of these verses, we could say that God loves justice. He loves justice that is commensurate with the nature of a given crime. Listen to me, everybody. God is not cool with letting people off the hook. He isn't. And that, that, that is not at odds with grace. Not at all. If God was cool with letting people off the hook, there's no need for a cross. The cross that we've just been singing about and raising our hands, praising God for. If God is cool with letting people off the cross, there's no need for Him to send a son to die for your sins and my sins. God is not cool with letting people off the hook. And if a judge in our modern system said to a rapist, you know, you had a rough childhood, so we're going we're, we're to overlook this one. Nobody is more upset about that than God. Conversely, if, if a judge in our system said to a person convicted of loitering, you good-for-nothing bum, I'm throwing the book at you, life in prison without parole. Nobody's more upset about that than God. Because God loves justice. And so we should love what God loves. We should hate what God hates. So we should love justice. We should hate injustice. And so we could apply verses 17 through 22 that way, and that would be fine. But there's a larger question which we've already asked. Why are these verses here? Sandwiched in the middle of this blasphemer story. Which is sandwiched in the middle of Sabbath teaching. There's got to be a reason. And it's clear that it, that it goes together because of the sandwich. And, and additionally, there's language used that's common to all of these things. For, for example, in the blasphemer story and in this, this, this section about about an eye for an eye, we, we get this phrase, this applies to the sojourner as well as the native, indicating that, that these things are being tied together. The name is also tying these things together. Look at verse 22. You shall have the same rule for the sojourner as well as the native, for I, Yah, I am Yahweh, your God. The, the, the divine name is tying these two sections together. So they're intended to be read together, not in isolation. But how does one help interpret the other? That's the question. Here's what I would suggest. An eye for an eye, again, is teaching us that the punishment must fit the crime. It can't be too lenient. It can't be too harsh. Well, this is being given to us in the middle of a story where a person has committed a crime and been condemned to death for it. Well, what was the crime? Well, we might, we might characterize that crime as the guy just said some words. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but you know the rest. He just said words. And now he's going to be 
paying the ultimate price. The entire nation is going to stone him to death. Is that reasonable? Does that punishment fit the crime? I suggest that the whole point of putting this Lex Talionis section right here is to say, absolutely reasonable. This is the only punishment that fits this crime. But how is that the case? How is it the case that this penalty fits the crime? Well, that's why we need to remember the larger context, like larger, larger. What was man created for? It's created for fellowship with God. Man can only flourish in fellowship with God. Man forfeited that when he rebelled against God in the Garden of Eden. He turned from God and essentially chose darkness and death. And and that's what separation from God is. And, And all people, all of us, we naturally have rebelled against God following in the path of Adam, rejecting God in any number of ways, which is why man universally malfunctions in this life and why man is doomed in the next life. But God has has been amazingly gracious to man by creating this way for man to re-enter His presence and live. And and, and we we saw in the early parts of Leviticus that, that that way of returning into the presence of God was depicted for us. It's the way of atonement through blood sacrifice that's fulfilled in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now remember, I said that God is, is not okay with letting people off the hook because He's a good judge. He's not a bad judge. He's a good one. No sin goes unpunished with God. And so the question that, that should come to every person's mind who hears that is, how then can I and how can you ever avoid eternity in hell under His wrath when we've committed so many crimes, so many sins calling for His just wrath? Well, the way that we avoid it is that God punished those sins in a substitute, Jesus Christ. A a substitute who had no sins of His own, but who was a pure sacrifice. A substitute who was a man and who therefore could be substituted for men. A substitute who was also God and and who therefore could endure infinite wrath through the power of an indestructible life. So, Jesus is the way for man to re-enter God's presence. Jesus is the way back to life from death. He's the way back to light from darkness. And so we've seen for the last few weeks that the goal of God's work in Christ, that is His goal through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, then is our reconciliation to God and our eternal basking in the light of His presence pictured by Sabbath rest. So for a person then to say, may God be condemned, as this person did in Leviticus 24, or for a person to say, say, I want nothing to do with Jesus. For, for, for a person to reject God, to reject the redemptive work of God through Christ, is for that person to reject the only way for man to re-enter life and rest. To say to God in Christ, I don't want you, is to choose death. And that's why this punishment for the blasphemy case of Leviticus 24, verses 10-23, through 23, that's why this penalty fits the crime. To reject God is to say, I want death. 
Sabbath rest. It's the goal of God's redemptive work in Christ. We enjoy that rest specifically by responding to the name of Jesus Christ according to the New Testament. There's numerous references to that effect in the New Testament. Let me give you just a few of these, okay? If you're taking notes, you can write these down very quickly. We, we, we enjoy the rest that comes through Christ specifically by responding to the name of Jesus Christ. Acts 2.38, Acts 2.38, Acts 3.16, Acts 10.48, 1 Corinthians 1.2, 1 Corinthians 6.11, Philippians 2.10, Colossians 3.17, 1 John 3.23. We respond to the name of Jesus Christ. Again, the person of Jesus Christ in repentance and faith. Saying, I don't want my own way anymore, but rather I want to trust in what Christ has done alone to reconcile me with the Father so that I can enjoy life and rest in Him forever. Now, when it comes to the application of these things that we've seen this morning, there could be any number of things that we might take home with us. I think the low-hanging fruit, obviously, is don't misuse the name of God. Don't misuse the name of Jesus Christ. Certainly, we should treat Him with reverence, particularly with how we use His name. But, but I would say that given the context of Leviticus 23-25, through 25, there, there are other things that we could take home with us as well. Think with me about the people in your spheres of influence who don't know the Lord, who have not followed the Lord in repentance and faith. Your family, friends, co-workers, neighbors. Consider the many people around you who are quite eager to receive the gift and reject the giver. Just talk to people out there. The majority will say, if they believe in God in heaven, the majority will say they are going to heaven. Occasionally you'll get somebody who says, no, I'm definitely not going to heaven. But the majority will say they are. And yet they will, they, they will say they don't have a relationship with God. They want the gift. They do not want the giver. With that in mind, what are some things that we should take with us this morning? First of all, Shouldn't we speak about Jesus? If, if, if it is true that there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved, shouldn't we talk about Him to these people? We, we, we all know it's, it's much easier to use the word God when, when talking to people about eternal things because, because with, with so many people there's, there, there is some, some common ground there. Because most people, statistics say most people still believe in God or a God. And, and so we, we may shy away from using the word Jesus because when you word, use the word Jesus, that's where you start to get some separation. But listen, we should approach communication with people about these things with the firm conviction that it is through Jesus alone that God saves. For the sojourner as well as the native. That means everybody. There is no other name under heaven, given among men, by which we must be saved. Shouldn't we then be very quick? Shouldn't we be very quick to say that name? Shouldn't we be very quick to share that turning to Him, embracing Him, trusting Him 
is the way to life and rest. While rejecting Him ensures that a person will remain on the path toward eternal death. Think about the boldness of Jesus Himself. You know, we tend to think about the fact that, that our culture is, is, is hostile toward these kinds of conversations. Not any more hostile than, than the crowd that Jesus was talking to. Think about the things that Jesus said and to whom He said them. Jesus said to the Jews, Come to Me, all ye who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus said to the Jews, If anyone thirsts, let him come to Me and drink. Jesus said, No one comes to the Father except through Me. You think you're talking to a hostile crowd. You think you're you're saying unpopular things. Why why don't we adopt the boldness of the Lord Jesus Christ? Shouldn't we talk about Him, first of all? Secondly, shouldn't we speak reverently about Him? Shouldn't people be able to tell by the way that we use His name and and by the way that we talk about them that that He is God? That that He's not just an historical figure, which He is, but that He's God. Shouldn't we be careful about how we use that name? Certainly never using it in vain but speaking with reverence that indicates the seriousness of who He is and what He's done. Should, should, shouldn't it also pain us when, when others do not use His name reverently? And I'm not suggesting that we should openly condemn people when they speak irreverently, but our hearts should remain in such a reverent posture toward Him that we almost flinch when someone misuses His name. Thirdly, shouldn't we speak clearly about Him? Shouldn't we speak clearly about Him? If there is no other name by which men can find forgiveness and life and rest, and if rejection of Him means continuing on the path of death, shouldn't we be winsomely clear about that? Again, Jesus was. No ambiguity in His speech. No ambiguity in the speech of the apostles. There should be none in ours. When when we love people around us, they, they should not be in a long-term relationship with us and, and, and have no clue about the fact that, 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 that Jesus is not a take-me-or-leave-me kind of person. You get what I mean by that? People should not, after interacting with us for any length of time, they should not get the sense that you can say no to Jesus and be okay eternally. We should be clear about these things. The people that we love should be clear on these facts. There is no other way to life and rest. To reject the giver is to reject the gift. Now, there may be, there may be some among us who have never followed Christ in repentance and faith. And to those of you, I, I would say, if you have any questions about the things that you've heard this morning, you've got people all around you who would love to talk to you, including me. I'm, I'm available. Pastor Rick, who read our, our Scripture reading this morning, he's available to talk to you. Pastor Jason, who's leading our worship, he's available to talk. Talk to somebody. But please don't leave this place with unanswered questions. Because who Jesus is, and the fact that He's absolutely necessary in order to have life and rest, that is the most important concept in human existence. Don't leave this place with unanswered questions about that. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for your Holy Spirit who helps us to understand it. We pray now for the ministry of the Holy Spirit that he would help us to apply it rightly. Father, there, 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 there may be many things that you would have us to do with the, these, these words that you've given us. We do pray, Father, that you would grant us the desire to speak the name of Christ, to honor the name of Christ, to be clear with the name of Christ among those with whom we, we are doing life. We pray that you would help us in that. And in these next few moments of silence, we pray that you would minister to us by helping us to understand how else we can live in light of the things that we've seen. We ask in Jesus' name.